Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated books on cinema. Hello everyone, my name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and critic. Today I'm going to be talking to Helen O'Hara, editor-at-large at Empire magazine and the author of several books, her latest book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, is a superb read, and we shall be discussing that. Please remember, if you enjoyed the episode, to like, subscribe, and generally spread the word as far and as wide as you possibly can. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the episode. first thing I wanted to to ask you about was more generally about your writing that mm-hmm. how did you first get into how did you first get into writing about film what was your first review my first review I think was on ain't it cool news because they used to publish things sort of for from anybody if you'd seen something that other people hadn't and I was living in London I was still a lawyer and I signed up to one of those services that you sometimes got you know preview tickets to see things through so I saw or and I sometimes went to like London Film Festival screenings and things like that so I saw I think it was the triplets of Belleville or Belleville Rendezvous as we call it here yeah and I wrote a review of that I think that was the very first one actually so it wasn't professional it wasn't paid it was just sort of you know I, I saw it I liked it I thought I'd try writing about it and I sent it into them and they published it as I remember I haven't gone back and looked because I'm kind of terrified <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. And then and when did you start when did you start thinking, okay, I could do this as a job? I don't know if I ever actually thought that. I, I went for the job, obviously. I, I went for an internship at Empire uh, and I I was just sort of I remember just trying to talk myself down the whole time because I was like, look, you're not you're not gonna get this. Like you it's just mm. not it's not gonna happen. You don't have any training, any experience. But I also thought, well, you know, this is the time in my life to give it a go. So so I sort of went for it anyway. But I, I never really thought I could, well, I don't know. I, I obviously thought I could do it. Like I was, I was quite, I remember being quite proud. I had to write a couple of sample news stories for the Empire website as part of that job application. And I remember thinking, all right, these are pretty much in the Empire style. Like those feel like stories that I might have seen on Empire. So I was okay with those, but like reviewing especially was kind of a hard thing to get into. And and I was very grateful to the then reviews editor, Dan Jolin, I think it was, who Actually, no, it wasn't Dan at the very beginning. But anyway, but Dan came in pretty soon afterwards and and sort of, you know, talked me through those early reviews and, and gave me good feedback and, and helped me kind of polish up my uh, my writing style. And you've never looked back from then on? <laughs> oh, I've always looked, I've looked back frequently. <laughs> but um, but no, I, do, I just keep trying to sort of polish up and, and keep reading other people's work and trying to be inspired by that and, and uh, try to find new ways of talking about things and consider things in different ways and and uh, just try and get better all the time I think yeah yeah I think reading other people's work is really key that you really you know, important yeah you know. really really important if 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 you know when young people tell me they want to be a film journalist I'm like okay what, what do you read and I'm not I'm not necessarily saying who because I wouldn't have been that nerd uh beforehand I would I didn't know who was the section editor of each section of the magazine and I probably should have done actually in in retrospect if I'd had journalistic training that would have been the kind of thing I'd have you know looked out for but I didn't know to what section editors were or what they did I didn't know particularly who who were the writers of what I vaguely knew the names because I read Empire so much but it wasn't like I was kind of familiar with who everybody was so I don't necessarily expect people to have kind of chapter and verse on like their top 10 favorite critics or something but I do think you should be reading criticism if you want to get into this job equally if you want to be a screenwriter you should be reading screenplays if you want to be a novelist you should be reading novels this is not new uh, advice you know if you read uh, Stephen King on writing it's basically chapter one two three four five and, and throughout so uh it is incredibly important but it is it's just standard i think i mean sometimes i think it's sometimes widely ignored because i mean personally i, I definitely have a sort of a, a, a attraction and repulsion to other people's work because it's like oh god it's so much better than what i'm doing so there's <laughs> there's always that danger as well of not wanting to be cowed exactly yeah uh, it's uh, it, it can be quite sort of scary i think uh, sometimes when you, there are some people you read and you're like that is light years away from where i am light years and that remains the case now, even as a professional of some God knows how many years. There are still some people I'm just like, how do you even do that? That's amazing. So, uh, but but also I think you, you should be inspired by that. You know, even if even if there are people who are well out of your league, you know, all you can try and do is is get better. Getting into films at an early stage, were there any writers who you read who sort of inspired you? Not necessarily even to write, but but just stuff you liked reading. Oh yeah, for sure. So I read a book called How to Read a Film in an attempt to understand, you know, camera angles and things like that. 
and I'll be honest, I don't usually write very much about those and I kind of feel like maybe I should. So I'm trying to kind of reread that at the moment. I then read the Anthony Lane book, Nobody's Perfect, which is a collection of his uh, reviews from The New Yorker, which is fantastic. Even when I disagree with him, he's one of those writers I just really enjoy reading. So that was really, really good fun. And yeah, I read a lot of sort of things like William Goldman's books, you know, Adventures in the Screen Trade and uh, Bambi versus Godzilla by David Mamet and Which Lie Did I Tell also by William Goldman and, you know, a bunch of those kind of classics very early on. And then, you know, it was just kind of reading, obviously, Empire and all my colleagues and all the other magazines that came into the office sometimes and whatever I could really get my hands on just to try and just to try and see. And, and it is really kind of instructive sometimes to read the critics who you totally disagree with and just see where they're coming from. And, and often, you know, you know, it's somebody like an Anthony Lane or, or Robbie Collin at the Telegraph or, or somebody like that, you know, I completely disagree with everything they're coming out with. But actually, I find a lot of their reasoning compelling and I enjoy it and, and it's well written and it's an entertaining read. So, so I think there's, there's a value in criticism sometimes, even when it's criticism you disagree with and criticism you, that, that, you know, that comes at it from a different perspective than you. I think this is something that maybe the, the, the internet has slightly sometimes overlooked, that there is value in it even when you disagree with the outcome. It's, yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's, you know, I, I, I kind of get a little bit wary of people who are too on the nose for me, you know, that uh, I'm, I agree with everything they write. So why am I reading it? <laughs> Yes, I know this. Yes, I like this. Yes, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. Stop telling me all the stuff I already know. Yeah, Robbie, um, I I know from from various festivals, and we disagree about almost everything. I think, mm. but he's. He, it's great to have dinner with him after a film and just okay come on what why was that good or bad because it's it's a, a a good conversation yeah exactly and and i think that it's the conversation that i i kind of enjoy in, in film criticism and you know just just the getting into it. and of course you know there's different ways of having that conversation there's the sort of you know more technical aspect of filmmaking and the more you know the more sort of nuts and bolts of movie making there is the very geeky conversations that we have in the empire spoiler podcasts about you know oftentimes there it's elements of plot it's elements of character it's elements of translation from the source material that, that we focus on more but but they're all interesting ways of discussing films and and i yeah i just thoroughly enjoy them all and then of course you know context like how does this film fit into the context of our world what does it say about us that we as a society have decided this is a good or a bad or a silly or a, an important film you know so so i think all of that is part of criticism and is what makes it interesting in and of itself uh, even beyond the material that it's discussing yeah absolutely and, and the best critics always make you sort of walk away thinking beyond the film to the to, mm. to the universe if that's not too too pretentious a thing to say what what about stepping from going towards writing a book what what was the sort of the in inciting incident in that in that journey well, I got I got kind of lucky, I think. Well, I got very lucky in several ways. So first of all, there's the fact that I wrote two books for Carlton publishers who were very quite hands off and very they the two books were quite similar to what I did day to day in the sense that you know, it, they were very much divided up into sections. They were very much, you know, a sort of an essay or an article on each one of, I think, 50 films in one and, and 35 films and or franchises in another. And that made it a lot kind of easier to, to kind of digest. You know, it was sort of writing 50 mini features rather than, than a book. 
um, right. which, which made it slightly less terrifying than it might otherwise have been. Coming on to this new book for, for Little Brown, um, Women versus Hollywood, that was a, a very much a horse of a different color. And I tried to sort of tell myself that it was kind of the same thing, that I was just writing some features, but it really wasn't because each chapter was around about the 10,000 word mark, which is, you know, without giving any trade secrets away, considerably longer than most Empire features. That's right. up there with, with how much I ended up writing about all the Harry Potter films on the last movie it was a, a very very different beast and while it helped to sort of be going chapter by chapter and the fact that they were quite different uh, subjects for each chapter and different focuses for each chapter so there were there was a sort of a coherent blob if you like to tackle each time like that blob was a lot bigger than than anything I had tackled before and and the scope of each chapter actually could have been a book in itself so I was laughably overambitious in what I tried to to take on for this book. And so just getting it, getting to a point where I felt like I'd done enough research to even dare to write anything was was one step. And then there was the the point of getting to the point where I could stop writing, you know, and right. um and not feel like I was shortchanging everybody I was writing about. And I still honestly I, you know, there's still people that I would like to have included or included in more depth or, you know, gone off on a tangent about and and or or, or added more nuance in about because there's it's it's a huge huge subject it is a laughably huge subject and uh, only a mad woman would attempt it so uh, well that's me i guess but uh, but yeah it was i mean it it, it was terrifying this book was terrifying to write i'm not going to lie I can imagine loads of people reading this book and just thinking and being inspired and thinking i want i want to do my phd thesis on the chapter the bit of chapter two that really intrigued me because because as you say they could then go into it and there probably is a, yeah. a thesis or two per chapter you know oh easily i think you know there's there's huge amounts of writing out there already on on each of these kind of areas but there should be much much more because i think f women in film generally is relatively understudied and there are mm. you know still the definitive books i think to be written on some of these women so some of them obviously have great great biographies and and you know, think pieces and everything already, but but some of them, I think there's there's still much much more to say. I cannot wait. I hope that's the case. I was incredibly lucky with the books that there already are out there about these women, and and I find you know I I really enjoyed the research, you know, which was one of the reasons it was so hard to stop doing it. <laughs> but you know, when you're reading something like Lulu and Hollywood about Louise Brooks, which she wrote herself, Liberating Hollywood, which is all about the struggles of women in the 70s. I mean, which is a fantastic, fantastic book. You know, these are great, great reads in themselves. From Reverence to Rape, again, another sort of book about the, the history of women in Hollywood, one of the great, great sort of overviews of women on the screen from Molly Haskell was fantastic it just popcorn venus you know just great incredible books a lot of those especially those last two focus more on on what was on screen than what was happening behind the camera but it's so so i at least made my my life slightly easier by just focusing really on what was for the most part what was off screen and what was happening in the professional lives of these women but there's so much to say about their personal lives there's so much to say about what what their characters on screen were going through and why those choices were made you know i i just think there's yeah it's it's tip of the iceberg stuff what struck me when i was reading was and and this is perhaps because i i i like read i like writing screenplays as well so i'm always on the lookout and and hollywood is really big on the sort of self-examination of films like mank was the most recent example yeah. of 
And I look at some of these stories of these women and I think this would be an amazing picture. This just the story of Mabel Normand or, or just yeah. the story of uh, Helen Gibson, the, the first stunt woman. That, what, what, what a movie that would make. Yeah. But, it, but I historically... I, I can't think of any. I can't think of any sort of films about women who are not like... The glamorous stars. The Marilyns or the whoever. Yeah, but even Marilyn, they always tend to film Marilyn via some bloke it's always mm. like her romances or uh you know my my week with marilyn it's that yeah, it's yeah. some oblique well hopefully hopefully the the anna de armas film will will slightly rebalance that i hope because she's mm. a fascinating character and i don't think she has had her due there, there's a mention briefly in the book but but mimi leader wanted to make a film about francis marion who was the first writer to win two oscars and was a hugely hugely important figure in sort of late talkie uh, late silent early talkie era hollywood and there was absolutely no studio interest according to her just none she could not get it off the ground. And I, I suspect that has been the case with a lot of these stories. And I suspect that there's been a lot of that. And I hope that that's going to change because I think, you know, there was a fair amount of attention to Be Natural, the Alice Guy Blachet documentary. I believe there's a new documentary, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm really excited about, about Lois Weber. So so those two, you know, in particular, and they, they get a lot of room in my book because they were two huge figures of the silent era but they uh, are kind of beginning to see their legacies sort of brought back to life if you will and I think that gives me hope that there's going to be a little bit of, a, of an upswell in interest in some of these stories and we might get to see a sort of a monk-esque film about some of these women like Ida Lupino that one should be an easy one shouldn't it you know yeah. she she had the most extraordinary life, came to Hollywood to be a star. They decided when she got there that she was too old to play Alice in Wonderland, which is what they brought her there to do. Got polio, survived polio, but she got dropped by her studio while she was while she was there. Then, you know, forced her way back to stardom, essentially, and spent all her time on set learning how to make movies and made herself into a director and, and did manage to have a career and did manage to make a couple of, you know, really great movies and was determined to kind of buck the trends of the time and make quite serious kind of issue films you know that's pretty extraordinary and she's gorgeous so you know come on hollywood that one that one's a gimme isn't it yeah it's a no-brainer absolutely nailed on <laughs> who who would be your sort of personal heroine you've you've sort of discovered in during your research and you'd like a lot more people to know about I, I do like i mean i didn't get as much into their private lives as i wanted to but all those kind of stunt women the helen gibson but but all of them you know um th there was a whole raft of women making those movies and i think that's incredible i mean given the extremely primitive safety techniques of the time i think they were incredible and i think there's got to be a story there uh, Nell Shipman, for the same reason, she's the one who went off to essentially not far off the North Pole to, to shoot a movie. But I think she's amazing. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, you go back in history, there's a lot of imperfections in terms of people's outlook on things. So Lois Weber's films on birth control are really eugenicist in some ways and not very, uh, not very okay. But at the same time, she was trying to grapple with something. And by the standard of her time, she was trying to be progressive. So do we give her credit for that? Or do we condemn her by the standards of ours? Same with Alice Guy Blachet, you know, she made what's believed to be the first film with an all black cast, um, certainly in the US. And it's a mess and it's racist. But, but by the standards of the time, the fact that she made it was quite radical. So does she get some points? Maybe, but probably not that many, you know? So I, I don't know if I have 
uncomplicated heroines, but there's definitely some intriguing figures. And at least as intriguing as the men who we could we could kind of do with learning more about. One of the main, one of the things that I took away from it, not the, the main thing, but one of the things I took away from the book was there is an injustice here to the women involved and to the women who wanted to have a career in Hollywood and were dissuaded by the just the circumstances and by the, the structures that were in place. But on top of that, there's also an injustice to like the spectators because we've we, we've not got twenty Ida Lupino films uh, or, mm. or, or or fifty you know c- comparative to some to a man who would be in uh, yeah. working in that similar period. I mean, are there any uh, of those careers that you think were were stopped? Do you sort of do you do you sense missing masterpieces there that that if mm. if only there there could have been a yeah. Yeah, very much. Um, Anita Luce is the one who comes to mind, the screenwriter. Uh, she wrote Gentlemen Fair Blondes, which is one of my all-time favourite musicals. I just adore it. I mean, without without any hesitation. I love, love, love that film. And her career was kind of stymied, actually not so much by the studios who actually valued her talent, but by the fact that her husband really resented it and kept sort of... <sighs> rather theatrically coming up with with diseases basically every time she had a bit of success so um so th- they had a very strange and strained relationship and i kind of think that that definitely held her back so i would have loved to have seen what she could have done you know with just more support more time more yeah le- less sexist nonsense so yeah there is one but but this is a, absolutely a problem you know all of those directors dorothy arsner lois weber Ida lupino like they all gave up before their time mm. um all the women of the 70s who'd never really got their foot in the door when they did they were so compromised and second guessed and questioned with everything they did that goes up to the present day there are women working nowadays who still have to wait years between films and who still find every quest you know every decision they make questioned by the people above them and around them and even below them you know so it's it's a real real problem we were actually discussing this today because uh, we're, we're doing the empire podcast this afternoon i mean this is a spoiler as i say this to you it will not be a spoiler by the time this goes yeah. out but we're about to discuss which directors would be on your personal mount rushmore and like personally they're all white men right because the female directors that i love generally speaking i love because of one or two of their films and the other ones maybe i, I admire maybe or i i you know like but i don't love and and the directors with the highest hit rate of things that i absolutely adore because they have made more films are generally men so you know i'm 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 very torn as as i speak to you about do i put one of the women in there anyway or do I be honest and say that my personal Mount Rushmore right now in 2021 is still pretty much white men? Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that in on Twitter the other day, people were posting like four pictures of great directors. Obviously, you know, a whole bunch of them were were just white guys. Yeah. And then I noticed there was a trend to start putting Celine Sharma in. And it was just like, uh, is that the first person you could think? You know, if this was if this was 20 years ago, yeah. you would have been putting in Jane Campion. Yeah, yeah. Or just... 10 years ago, it would have been Catherine Bigelow. You know, it just... Right. And, and look, I, I admire those directors, you know. I, I do. And I love, like, if Catherine Bigelow was on my, and she's the, probably the one who came closest to my personal Mount Rushmore, and that's entirely on the basis of Point Break. I, I like The Hurt Locker a lot, but is it in my top 100 favourite films of all time? No. Are there, like, seven Rob Reiner films in my top 100 films of all time? Yes, probably. You know, and Spielberg and The Coens. 
and probably yeah. Billy Wilder. That's probably my four at the moment. <laughs> uh, I'm counting the Coens as one. That's okay, right? I think. I think. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, like Chloe Zhao, in a few more years, if she goes on the, 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 at the pace she's going, absolutely may well have a place on that on that hill. But right now, I admire her. I have loved the rider. I have loved Nomadlands. But that's that's you know that's kind of it. Uh, so I need we need more from all of these women. And and you know I, I feel like right now I have seen. I, I'll be honest, I'm not as as comprehensive as I would like to be on Agnes Varda. I've been doing a little bit of a dive into her stuff, but she's very much of the French New Wave, and none of the male directors there made my list. And you know she is also does not. You yeah, know? Yeah. So I kind of, I kind of, I feel like a bit of a, of a, of a gender traitor and a bit of a, a failure, you know, but at the same time, if we're talking about what I personally love, it is mostly the films of men because they have made most of the films. Right, right. And they've made them under the most favorable circumstances possible. Yeah, with the biggest stars and the best scripts and the biggest budgets. So yeah. what are you going to do? And you're, and even as you were saying, even up to the present day, you you can have someone who's a very successful filmmaker as a woman, but you know they only need one misstep, and mm. and the consequences seem to be much more traumatic than you know. I mean, almost someone like Spielberg can do 1941, Oscar Scorsese can do New York, New York, but you know, heaven forfend you do an Ishtar and and. and <laughs> Oh, Ishtar makes me so cross. Actually, Elaine May is not a bad shot. She's got a great hit rate. But yeah, no, I, look, I, both of those directors did briefly go to director jail after those movies you mentioned, to be fair to them. However, the difference is in length of sentence. And, and certainly as regards Ishtar, the, the difference is, is marked. And, and, you know, I think in some ways, and we can have, that's a whole other conversation, 1941 was kind of the making of Spielberg because it really forced him to knuckle down and be very, very disciplined with himself in future, which I think helped his career after that point. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there is, a, there is a marked difference in how men and women are treated in movie jail and how long their sentences are and uh, the likelihood of them ever recovering, really. I mean, Mimi Leder went, what, 18 years after? After pay it forward, which seems a lot. I mean, she and she was working in TV, and some of that time she may have just given up on features and just thought, you know what, I've got a great TV career, fine. But again, was that entirely out of choice, or was that things like this Francis Marion biopic just not finding any takers? And and I think there's a lot of that going on. There is when you're a female director or you want to make a film about a female lead, you already have a higher hill to climb and you already have a tougher job convincing studio executives that this is something that might connect with people and might matter to people because all they see is oh but it's about a woman and I'm not a woman and I don't see why that's important that seems niche I mean women are literally treated as a sort of a niche subject and that's that's the fundamental problem here women are treated like a minority and that's not the case you get into these ridiculous situations where you've got studio bosses going, you know, well, I don't think anybody would go see that because they wouldn't go see it, you know. And and again, this is something I, I, I talk a little bit about in the book, but I noticed for several years in a row, we'd keep getting these female-led hits that would be treated as sleeper hits. Like, oh my God, who thought who thought this would be such a big hit? And it was stuff like Eat, Pray, Love, which was based on a phenomenally best-selling book. It was stuff like Mamma Mia, which was based on a phenomenally successful musical and, and, and things like Twilight. And they were going, oh, who could have seen this coming? I'm like, I could have. I mean, I don't think I'm alone, but I, I'm not saying I'm special, but I, I could have seen that those would be hits. But each time it was kind of particularized and treated as this one-off, unreplicable event. 
And, and I think it's it's a similar sort of thing with directors as well. You know, each time one of them succeeds, they're treated as the exception. Each time a female director succeeds, it's it's an exception. She's a, a one-off instead of, you know, and, and whereas if a man fails, uh, he's treated as just, well, that happens sometimes to people, doesn't it? No big deal. You know, brush yourself off, try again. Whereas if a woman fails, it's like all women are bad. And 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 you, it is a genuine disconnect. It's a genuine problem. And I and Hollywood is only really just now beginning to to grapple with it to any significant degree. I mean, it is it is true that the that it seems like Hollywood is trailing behind a complete change in trends in terms of the audience. I mean, I notice this. Mm. I I'm I teach and I notice this in my classes that you know 20 30 years ago if you say oh who's into science fiction or who's into this type of movie it would have been split very much in favor of the boys but nowadays mm. the vast majority of 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 geeks let's say are women and it's because they've been brought up on Harry Potter Twilight and Hunger Games yeah. so you've got a large part of the audience for superhero movies and what have you who who are no longer this exclusive boys club but i mean it's it's a bit chicken and egg isn't it because you know where are those boys you know dominating fandoms because the fandoms were only talking to them you know i've always loved sci-fi and fantasy that's always been kind of my home genres right. if you will and that's because i grew up in a house where my dad had first of all bookshelves full of them absolutely full of them but um but he also had you know bookshelves full of books written by women because my granny and my aunt were into it as well and so we had loads of Anne McCaffrey books and we had loads of Lois McMaster Bujold books and you know there were women in my sci-fi novels and my fantasy novels who were amazing and who were cool and there were you know to be stereotypical there were love stories there were interpersonal problems there were all sorts of very very relatable things and it wasn't just the sort of Robert Heinlein-y here is the make and model of my laser right and you know here is all the detail of the troop disposition kind of stuff sci-fi and fantasy are much much wider than that and I was lucky enough to be brought up in that kind of breadth of of sci-fi and fantasy and the thing is that mainstream or what was treated as mainstream sci-fi and fantasy was the kind of Heinlein-y, Asimov-y, Clark-y, incredibly blokey stuff and if you read that now like it's embarrassing how bad their women are yeah. these guys like Arthur C. Clarke literally thought up stuff that now exists in real life. He, he he was able to envision technology that now exists and did not exist in his time because he was that far ahead of the, of the curve in the science. And his women are still unbelievably shit because he couldn't conceive of women being equal to men. And it makes his books embarrassing. And that's kind of how films are going to be right. looking back. Right. And it's already happening when you look back at some of the 80s movies and you see the way they talk about LGBT people or you see some of the racism in some of these movies. You see, you know, Dan Aykroyd in blackface and trading places and you're like, oh, God, I love this movie. But no, I don't <laughs> love this. You know, it's already happening. These things are already changing. And if you want to be future proof you should be talking to the whole audience and not just to white men we did a film club with blade runner recently with the university and the again my film club 100 percent women yeah uh, all all, mm -hmm. all the girls turn up and she and, and the and the thing that they we spent about a third of the of the couple of hours that we we talk we spent a third of the time talking about the love scene the the love yeah. scene air quote and whether or not that's rape yeah, yeah absolutely and um and i just found it so interesting that it was that 
that we were we were having this conversation but i also found myself thinking i really wish that wasn't in the film because it does yeah. it kind of screws up the film and i i gave a really elaborate potential out saying well if he's a replicant then he doesn't know anything about <laughs> consent and he doesn't know anything about anything and so <laughs> you know, and it's like uh, and i even i was not convinced even I, as i heard my own voice i was thinking no john no yeah, it's it, it, yeah, it's it's exactly that kind of thing, you know. That is just, but do you know what gets me? Actually, it's not Blade Runner. I mean, Blade Runner is Blade Runner. It's of its time, and yes, that scene is in there, and it's at best troubling, mm. at best. But you know, you always have to have your filter on for these things in the eighties and go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Just, I'm not, you know, I'm going to enjoy what I enjoy and I'm going to think about the problematic stuff later, you know, a, a little bit. What gets me is Blade Runner 2049, actually. And, and it gets me that every sex worker we see in that movie appears to be a woman it gets me that what was anna de Armas? was she love or the other one joy she was joy she wasn't love joy she wasn't love joy. <laughs> there's love and joy um <laughs> but like anna de Armas's joy she's obviously the, the companion ai whatever we see into other people's apartments sometimes we see adverts in the street couldn't they have also been advertising a male joy equivalent like I'm, I'm not talking change the focus, even change the lineup of characters. I'm talking about in the background, build the fact that women exist into your world as more than just kind of playthings of men. And and I, those two things, the fact that, and this was a summer that really got to me because there were about four different sci-fi movies, which you know, in these futuristic landscapes, all had female or female-coded sex workers who were working for male or male-coded characters and there was no nuance there was no acknowledgement that society might change or might move on i mean you know and people say oh well helen it's a dystopia in blade runner you know it's not supposed to be some gender equality paradise i would submit to you that having male sex, work sex workers does not make it a gender equal paradise it's still pretty fucking dystopian because you've still got sex workers right there and so, so i don't think that there's still somebody being exploited whatever way you look at it i just think it would acknowledge that people other than straight men exist in this reality it was blade runner 2049 that summer it was guardians of the galaxy 2 and it was valerian and the city of a thousand planets and i think something else and they all have this trope in it and it just it really upset me it's like the limits of male imagination, isn't it? You know, it's going back to exactly Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein, you know. Yes. I, I can imagine a weird spaceship, but I can't imagine different relationships with men and women. And it, and if you're going to call yourself a visionary director, which they did for Blade Runner 2049, then have a vision. 
and and consider half of humanity in that vision. In fact, you know what? Go ahead and consider all of humanity and, you know, think about different cultures and think about different races and think about different religions and everything as well, because a lot of that is obviously also missing. I'm not saying women are the only or the most put upon in the, in these scenarios, but they are also, dis, you know, disincluded here. And it would be nice if filmmakers, especially those who are trying to see into the future, would acknowledge that. It's a tell, isn't it? It's a real tell. Yeah, that, you know, is. I'm not, I, I just can't, that's one thing I can't get over. I can get, you know, I can see flying cars and stuff, but I can't, I can't see anything else in terms of relationships. Yeah. I mean, this leads us on to, to the, to the context of the book being published at a moment in which sort of Me Too and the discussion about exploitation. And now uh, we're recording this mm. just after the Noel Clark sort of allegations have come out as well. I think last time I talked to you, I actually asked if this was tailing off. Uh, and it, mm. it seems it seems no, it isn't, uh, thankfully. Uh, thankfully in the sense that it's being relieved, not thankfully in the sense that it, it's still going on. I don't, I'm not asking for like an end point to this, but you would think that there would be some sort of structural reforms at the highest levels and, and all the way through the film industry to sort of just start vetting people a little bit more because none of this seems to be shocking and surprising when it, when it ends up coming out. I'm, I'm thinking yeah, I mean, specifically of BAFTA yeah. giving Noel Clark the a big award. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, there's, there's, so there's a bunch of different things raised by that question. I think. So first of all, there's the fact that a, a lot of the allegations against Noel Clark, we should be fair, are historic. So, you know, they predate the Me Too movement. Um, so, you know, that that obviously wasn't something that people were necessarily aware of at the time when they were complained of. And, and that's old, don't worry about it kind of structure was very much still in place uh, for a lot of those uh, alleged incidents. Second of all, the, there's the fact that judging by the, the, the extent of the allegations against uh, Noel, the number of people that they came from, and also the letter signed by, I think, 800 people that followed in the wake of those allegations, just calling for basically better treatment within the British film industry as a whole. That suggests to me that, first of all, that, you know, the UK didn't really have Me Too. There weren't right. a lot of, you know, British people caught up in that. There wasn't a lot of, I think, reckoning here. And there certainly wasn't any kind of house clearing of, you know, of anybody of, of that level uh, as Harvey Weinstein. So it it may be that we didn't really deal with it at the time. And maybe, and I hope maybe we will now. But I think the bigger issue and the issue for a lot of this, and and this is, this is me slightly giving voice to an excuse that is often made, but I don't want to give it as an excuse. I want to just discuss it as a factor. The studios and people in the studios will often say there is no, you know, central authority. There is no central board here. There is no one who can weigh up the allegations and investigate and take action to ensure that certain people don't work in the industry again if they can't be trusted around women. Um, and, and this is not just Noah Clark. This has nothing to do with him. This is a general comment about the, the UK film industry and indeed the US film industry. There is nobody who determines whether or not you get to keep making movies uh, and whether or not you, you can be trusted. BAFTA's whole line was, we don't have the resources to investigate this. We can't. They, they felt that they couldn't act on a rumour. I would maybe dispute that, but they, they felt that was the case. And they also felt they couldn't, they didn't have the resources and they didn't have the ability to investigate, which again, I would maybe quibble with, but 
that was their position. And there is something to that. There is no person who is currently, you know, authorized to get into this stuff. So you're relying on each production, whether big budget or tiny budget, of having someone who is competent, trained, equipped, authorized, empowered to investigate, to take action against sometimes their own employers. And, and that kind of that kind of powerful HR person doesn't exist in the biggest com- companies in the world, let alone the kind of ad hoc assemblages of people who are set up to make films. Now, this is not to excuse the industry, because I think there is a lot more that could be done. I think the the guilds and so on uh, of, of professional guilds could maybe do more. I think certainly producers should be doing more to protect crew on their own productions. But there probably is a case that they do need some more support or at least training or at least standardized operating procedures in order to be able to effectively do that. So, for example... And this is, again, something I wrote about a little bit in the book. But the idea of bringing in rules about sex scenes and intimate content and intimacy coordinators, that's really a step in the right direction, I think. And I think it is helping to make those scenes slightly less loaded for a lot of people. But that only works if the intimacy coordinator is empowered, is is supported by the producers, is supported by the production to be able to protect the vulnerable people inside. And it only works if they brought in the intimacy coordinator in the first place, which obviously is now becoming standard in a lot of contracts, but it's not universal yet. So you need something like that. You need a code of conduct. You need it to be stuck to. You need it to be enforced by the industry in some fashion, maybe by distributors, you know, like Netflix and Amazon did with intimacy coordination and SAG did in the US. That's the kind of thing that needs to happen to to kind of force, essentially, in the nicest possible way, all these productions to actually protect the people who work for them but it it is it is not a simple thing and I don't mean to suggest that it is that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be done and it doesn't mean it can't ever happen but uh, the very first step is having the conversation so I think that's still where we are and I think that's true of the US as well as here I think we're still mostly in step one acknowledging that this is a problem and we need to do something about it step two doing something about it is very much still to come and and it's only really when we've done that 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 the sort of the me too movement will have actually done its job yeah i was i was going to suggest and then you mentioned it the guilds and the and the unions because ultimately it's about protecting your members uh it's about um yeah it's not about going out and catching people it's about making sure that that no one has to submit to this yeah and then yeah if you catch people in the process then so be it i think me too and and I think this conversation generally has been a, a very, very positive thing, and we have—it's forcing a lot of people to rethink. And sometimes that those re- that rethinking is also unconscious. I remember once being getting on the wrong side of an argument by just really casually saying, referring to Louis C.K. as a, as a victim. Oh, he's been the victim, and then and then no, no, I didn't mean he was the victim, but. But that unconscious bias needs to come out, you know. Mm. Uh, that's the last thing I wanted to say, the last thing I wanted to express. But why is that? Why is the collocation there? Why is that the word that mm. immediately affixes? So hopefully that ongoing will be will will happen. Well, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, I think there is this not just British, but particularly British sense of fair play. And so, you know, a lot of people after the Noah Clark allegations came out sort of went, well, he's innocent until proven guilty, which is, of course, 100 percent correct. He is absolutely innocent until proven guilty. Who's going to prove him guilty? I mean, there's no that's not a thing that's going to happen. Um, a lot of the allegations weren't even criminal. So there is no question of, of being proven guilty. That doesn't necessarily work as something to shut down conversation because that shuts down conversation maybe too much. So so it's 
it's really hard to know what the next step is in a lot of these cases. And there is, we do have this very, I think in most cases, commendable desire to give people the benefit of the doubt, to give people, as I say, to give people the credit that they are innocent until proven guilty, to to give people second chances and, and allow them, you know, slip ups. I think there's a very, 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 very big swell of feeling among not all men, but many men, that a lot of what is sometimes complained of as being sexual harassment or, you know, inappropriate comments and stuff like this. There, there's a big feeling of, I understand why he said that. He thought it was funny. I think it's funny. Uh, he should not be pulled over the, hold over the coals for that. And, and I think that happens a lot. And we are, we all say that sometimes we're all saying, well, that's not, that's not that big a deal. You know, mm. you know, you, you could shrug that off, but we don't necessarily know the whole context. And it may be that the way it was said, the moment it was said that the, the circumstances in which it was said were were genuinely frightening or genuinely upsetting or whatever else so th- there's a lot going into all this and we do have these i think understandable and even commendable urges to sympathize with people who have been accused of something because we know that we might also have said the wrong thing at times we know that we might also have gotten drunk and i don't know grabbed somebody at some point and and maybe we did it in a gross way and we don't know because we were super drunk at the time i'm teetotal i don't know how that works but i'm sure it does but but you know so we're all very very conscious of our own failings and we project that onto others and we say well we've got to give them the benefit of the doubt because we would want the benefit of the doubt as well but the thing is at some point and this is something i discussed in the book as well i think it's better to be a little bit hypocritical and condemn behavior that we think is now beyond the pale and that we think is now harassment rather than keeping on always giving the benefit of the doubt to everybody, even after numerous cases of bad behavior. You know, the, the Mel Gibson cases, for example, on the, the hangover part, was it two that he was hired for? There were lots of crew members who were apparently saying, well, he should be given a second chance. I mean, by that point, it was his third or fourth or I don't know. But they obviously felt, well, you know, I might have gotten drunk and said something sexist to a cop or whatever. So I want him to have the same mercy I would have. Yeah, sexist is one thing. Holocaust deniarist. Is... I, 100%, like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, my, my point here is not to, to diminish what sure, he did. But, sure. you know, you know what I mean? I think that's the way people talk about these things. They sort of think, well, I might have said something sexist to somebody. I might have grabbed at somebody. I might have done that. So I, ha- I want him to have the same benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, like, we have to stop doing that because we keep giving these people the benefit of the doubt and they keep preying on people. And, and, and we're, we're doing this thing where we keep empathizing with the accused, but we're not empathizing enough with the victims. And we need to do a little bit more of that before we can fairly empathize with the accused as much as we currently do. Because I think that's what's been missing. You know, there's this, there's been this tendency over the years and really up until Me Too, and I think this was the big kind of psychological change of Me Too, was that the the casting couch and this this idea that that as standard almost powerful men would prey on young beautiful women was laughed off and that was taken as just a fact of life powerful men prey on young women they ask them out young women probably want to go out with them because young women probably want their money and this was just what people thought and i think that's been the shift of me too people have been forced to interrogate those assumptions and forced to think actually what if that's not the case and that's what kind of gives me hope for the future because I think that's where things are beginning to change a little bit and we're beginning to see that no that's not what's happening here I mean that's it goes back to the the what we were saying about Blade Runner as well it seems to be a lack of imagination it's like Mm. we've got one way of thinking about how power should express itself 
Look at yeah. Scott Rudin recently. You throw things around, you shout, you scream, and then and then you know whiplash style. It's left ambiguous. Were, were you a monster, or did you teach me an important life lesson? Mm. Why is that the only way to to have a, a, a portrait of a powerful person? Yeah, you know, or, or it can be if it's a, a a woman who's a powerful person, then it has to be a Meryl Streep devil. The devil wears Parada, and that's it. it just seems so limited to see power in that way. Yeah, and, and destructive. I think that's one hundred percent true. Yeah. Very, very destructive. And I think this is the problem, and it's something that I think women who came up through this uh, system have kind of grappled with. Like I, uh, one of the books I read before uh, writing this was about Sherry Lansing, who was one of the first big you know, female studio heads. And she came up through the system and was often assumed to have been sleeping with her boss. And she had to make her way despite that. Her contemporary Don Steele was incredibly like tough talking, hard drinking, hard swearing. If, you know, if there was room for one woman in the room, she was going to be it. And she was going to be one of the lads. And that was her path to the top. And both of them really had to, I think, grapple with the way that they were perceived and the way that they were able to be the one woman who succeeded because there was not room for more than one at the time. And it was very, 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 very limited uh, numbers of women who were allowed to succeed. And yes, that's because we have this male version of what power looks like, what success looks like, what ambition looks like, what competence looks like, actually. If you think about the way that directors are spoken about and treated, there are certain directors, and we I don't need to name them because you know exactly who they are, but like Oscar nominees in recent years who were notorious for having onset talent tantrums and going crazy at people and yet they keep getting stars to work with them and they keep getting you know oscar attention and people to fund their films and everything else and then there'll be female directors who will just have a moment one day and need some time out or need to cry or need to just take a second to think about things and suddenly there are dits and they can't make up their minds and they can't be trusted and they're too emotional. What's what's okay and what isn't? And I think we do have this massive double standard in how men and women are allowed to act and still be treated as, as powerful or as competent even, or as emotional. How we're allowed to be emotional is very, very male coded. And I, I have to say, I heart the way you referred to a director, but didn't say his name, you know. I imagine no he... Idea who you mean. I... <laughs> <laughs> on a sort of more sort of positive note coming mm. i mean this is all a positive note i think because you know it can be painful making changes and i sometimes think a lot of the resistance to this is just laziness you know it's just about <laughs> you know it's just like think before you speak or, or mm. learn how people hear what you're saying and adjust your behavior accordingly you know yeah deal with the consequence i mean that to me is just like maturity isn't it that's not it's not that difficult i mean it, it, never heard but... of it mate no idea. <laughs> so going towards the sort of looking towards the future and looking towards mm. and you, you've already mentioned chloe Zhao, and there are there are there are examples of patty jenkins as well getting into sort yeah. of a higher level in terms of budget and in terms of uh different genres do you have are you fairly optimistic about the future or do you think there's there's going to be there's going to need to be even more changes there do need to be more changes. There absolutely do. And, and some of those that we talked about um, in terms of just kind of formalizing the industry and making it a little bit more up to date in terms of protecting people definitely needs to be in there. Also, in terms of equal pay, that, that needs to be a part of the conversation as well. So, yes, that all needs to happen. And let's be honest, the percentage of, let's say, female directors, also female composers, cinematographers, you name it, is still way too low, like way too low. But the reason I have hope and the reason that I think things are moving in the right direction, broadly speaking, 
is that I think there are signs that Hollywood is now taking this seriously. I think there are women now getting big jobs and getting second chances as well. Wonder Woman 1984 might not have performed quite as well as they hoped, but Patty Jenkins will be back for the third one and Patty Jenkins is making a Star Wars movie and these are great, great things. Ava DuVernay's uh, A Wrinkle in Time didn't do quite as much at the box office as they hoped, but she is not obviously in director jail and has done great work, for example, on TV um, with When They See Us and so on since, and is still very much part of the conversation for the big movies that come up. I'm, I'm excited for Chloe Zhao's Eternals. I'm super, super excited for that. I'm super excited for, you know, Kate Shortland's Black Widow and the fact that this may open doors to her that were previously out of her kind of budget range or her perceived budget range. I think the fact that these women are getting these big opportunities is really significant. Now, yes, these are a tiny minority of female directors directors. And yes, they are not necessarily the most outspoken, the ones who have been complaining about this the most. You know, somebody like Lexi Alexander, who has really put herself on the line to argue for, for better treatment of female directors, is still not obviously gaining any benefit from having done that. So there, there's still a long way to go. But the fact that these women are getting these opportunities, the fact that there are many of them, and it's not just one a year anymore. That matters. And it means that we might get to a point where they have built up the kind of CVs that men have always been allowed to build and they build up enough power and enough of their own money that they can go off and they can make their small personal projects and win Oscars and so on. And we can begin to change that Oscar picture a little bit further as well. These things are beginning to happen and they're happening too slowly and they're happening at far too limited a level. But the fact that it's also happening at the top end of the budgetary market is really heartening because quite frankly, we saw in the 90s, you could have as many mid-budget mid hits as you want and it doesn't move the needle. This might move the needle a little bit more and that's that's my big hope. Yeah, that sort of independent sort of mid-range $10 million move. All those, all those rom-coms, you know, all those kind of, um, like even something like Wayne's World, you can make a hit with Wayne's World, but it doesn't mean you get to come back for the sequel. Sorry, no, I'm, no I'm, I'm definitely not going to edit this out. I'm going to keep this in because this is called <laughs> me, me, me thinking of a, a question. And then Dude, I do this all the time in interviews, forgetting. all the time. No, I don't want to ask that question. That's a stupid question. <laughs> I, it's better that it's gone. It's it, I, I got it back, and it wasn't worth it wasn't worth stretching okay. to get it. Right. What I uh, what I, I would like to do, sort of, to end off the interview, is to ask you for a book recommendation. That for anybody who's interested in reading film books, which I'm assuming everybody who's Ooh. listening to this will be. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Mm, this is tough. Like I say, there's a lot. Well, there's a lot of already mentioned. So let uh -huh. me see if I've got something else. I stand by all the ones I already mentioned. Sure. Oh, here's one. It's quite hard to get, but if you can find it, I think it's amazing. It's called it's called Dreams and Nightmares by Bob McCabe, the late great Bob McCabe, and it's about Terry Gilliam and the Brothers Grimm. You don't ah. have to be a fan of the Brothers Grimm to have to enjoy it, but I think it's really really good on sort of one of Gilliam's uh, troubled productions, <laughs> which which is the same as saying one of Terry Gilliam's films. One of Terry Gilliam's films, yes. <laughs> um, look, I mean his latest one, I I didn't love. But, uh, and I didn't love The Brothers Grimm, but it's a fascinating book on just what kind of went on behind the scenes and the kind of interference and, and conversation that went on. And I thought that was great. The other one I really adore, and again, this might be hard to get hold of. I don't know how widely available these are, but this is Doctor Who, The Writer's Tale, The Final Chapter 
by Russell T. Davis and Benjamin Cook. And as I understand it, basically Benjamin Cook started writing to Russell T. Davis you know, as a fan, as a Doctor Who fan, and they ended up discussing basically every episode of Russell T. Davis's work on Doctor Who. And it's just fascinating to see how things changed, how things you know, were, were sharpened up in the writing process, how ideas kind of mutated into what we see on screen. And I just think it's it's really, really fascinating and just, you know, well-written and, and charming and and very personable as well. So, uh, yeah, those are two of my favourites, apart from all the ones that I have already mentioned. Yeah, you mentioned some of my favourite uh, books earlier as well. I was uh, I, mm. I went through a real... Well, I mean, I used to read uh, film books because where I was living, we couldn't really get to the cinema that often. So I would often be re especially those big like encyclopedia of science fiction or oh, yeah. Yeah, encyclopedia yeah. of cult movies and you would just be like i can't imagine what this even looks like how could anyone <laughs> you know and then the legend would build about the movie and i'd watch it and and often sometimes a letdown right <laughs> often sometimes a letdown but like in the case of i don't know texas chainsaw massacre it was like way beyond what i had imagined i was like this mm. is this is hot this is so horrible yeah, yeah, that's that's a film. Even today, I watch it and I have to stand up and walk around. I can't, you know, watch it all it's the a way bit through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've managed to sit through that once, but that's it. <laughs> and I'm okay with never going back. Quite frankly, I revisited it really recently, and and I kind of forced myself to watch it because it's a real. I first watched it when I was like eleven or twelve, mm. and much too much too young. And a friend of mine, he was, his parents were coming home for, 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 for lunch. So we were watching it in the morning on his video. And then, uh, and then he said, oh, God, you, it's 11.30. You better go. Mum and Dad will be home soon. And so I had to <laughs> leave it without seeing the ending. No. And so I was like, oh, no, I should have seen the ending when they killed the monster because that way I, I would. Some kind of catharsis, right? Exactly. But, of course, when I did watch it, they don't kill the they don't kill the monster. No. It, it's still open ended. So it was a it was a great yeah. That that's one of my favorite films in, mm. in a weird way, just because it's so visceral. You know, it's, yeah. That's that effect. Listen, Helen, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. And you you I was really I was sort of hesitant about asking you because I saw her on Twitter as well. You do so many podcasts. I was thinking, oh, you're going to be so sick to the I back. I have teeth. been on. Yeah, I'm, it's just it's it's more. It's not that, you know, I quite enjoy doing the podcast. It's more when I tweet about them, I'm unconscious that people must be like, oh my God, she's on another fucking podcast. Are you kidding me? Because it does feel like it's been about every week since February, probably. <laughs> it's been close to that. How's the book done? I don't know, really. I think right. it seems to have done quite well. The publisher seems quite pleased. Um, but right. I don't know what counts as even good or bad these days, you know. Uh, but the book, of the, the book of the Week thing on Radio 4, I think, was was really encouraging. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I think that gave it a bit of a bump. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, yes, it was Book of the Week and that was great. But it wasn't, you know, the shops weren't open at the time. So it wasn't ah, like somebody heard yeah. it on Radio 4 in the morning and then was able to just toddle off and happen to pick up a copy in the afternoon. So I don't know if that means that it didn't get as much of a bump as it, you know, would normally do. I think you'd be surprised. I think they actually, I think they'd they'd all buy it on Amazon or yeah, maybe, or maybe, yeah. Else. You know, I've got a, I've I've got an agent, and he tells me the book the book trade has actually been, been good. boosted. Okay, well that would be nice. Been, um, but yeah, no, my yeah. Um, my editor is quite happy with me, so I think that's it's a good sign, right? Um, although. I did suggest her recently. I sort of went, oh, I think I've got an idea for a second one. And she just has not picked up on that at all. So I'm like, 
<laughs> that's a bit emba- that's 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 not right that you you need to uh, send uh send another email straight away saying come on <laughs> what 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 is your what is your uh, idea if you well, this is very, very, very early days. I haven't figured out how to write it, but I thought it'd be sure. interesting to talk about who the bad guys are in Hollywood. So in different eras, like what the different bad guys have kind of been or represented. Um, so, you know, communists or communism, unionism probably as well. Gangsters and aliens and just just what do, what do the bad guys say about us, essentially? Because, and the reason I thought of this is because recently I have been incredibly annoyed at the trend that Hollywood has to make environmentalists or environmentalism the the reason that bad guys do what they do. Thanos actually is quite a good example, but like he's doing it because he wants to save the world, and he, but he's killing off half of humanity to do it. Hobbes and Shaw, I think, had the same motivation. Venom had the same freaking motivation. I mean, what? Not Venom personally, but, you know, Riz Ahmed character in oh. Venom. So it's like, it's really common now to have, oh, the bad guy wants to save the world by in some way getting rid of enslaving or wiping out half of humanity. And, and I'm not here for it. And I don't think it's okay. And so that kind of got me thinking about this issue. But, you know, you go back and you have all the terrorists of the early noughties and you have the commies of the 80s and so on. So just Eastern European gangster exactly, yeah. from, from Kazaka Medioposta. And, and, and who all the, yeah, who all the, uh, who all the terrorists are through the years? Because obviously there's quite a lot to say about some of the Northern Irish terrorists as well. So, um, so I just think, but it's, it's figuring out how to do it. Do you go era by era? Do you go kind of subject by subject? And then do you count like... So I would argue that women tend to be bad guys because they're women sometimes. But there's now beginning to be a trend of toxic men being bad guys because they're toxic, because of because of toxic masculinity. So that would probably go in one chapter. But do you put in the sort of gay and trans panic in that in that same chapter? Probably. So gender and sex being kind of one chapter. Big business, you know, when is it a bad guy? When is it not? Weirdly, I think it's often a bad guy in kids' movies of the 80s. But it's rarely, rare, rarely a bad guy like in movies now, which is bizarre, really bizarre. I always, I always had the feeling that Hollywood tended to identify the people that it wanted to sort of take power away from, mm. and and it would invert the power pyramid. Yeah. You know, so the big, the obvious example is like the the American Indian, mm-hmm, the native. Mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous people they become the huge threat which kind of helps us to uh, you know get rid of them and then the femme fatale becomes a threat in the post-war you know period because the men are coming back from war and suddenly women have got that have had jobs and they're like what the fuck and they've got a lot they've got a life you know they've got a bigger life or even like um the late 80s early 90s sort of erotic thriller the men kill their wives much more than glenn Mm -hmm. close yep you know and and that sort of sharon stone with an ice pick exactly so that's kind of what i want to get into so i think it could be yeah i think it could be good and the nice thing about this would be i'd still have to read some books of course but mostly I'd have to watch movies. Hey, <laughs> and that's what we're here exactly. for. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Helen. Pleasure as always. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Helen O'Hara. Her book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, is available everywhere and comes highly recommended. Thanks very much to Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the artwork. Please like and subscribe and do all the things that you have to do to make this as big as possible. But until next week, that's all for us at the uh, Writers on Film 
podcast. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.